So uh, thank you for having me as your guest, and thank you for looking after us so well. It's, a, it's an honor to be with you. Um, it's good to be back here again, back in Canberra with all of you guys. So uh, thank you for having us back. We're looking forward to the few days that we have with you, and um, it's an honor to get out of Melbourne <laughs> from the Hermit Kingdom of Victoria. So uh, thank you very much for having us here. Um, I want to share with you, and, and here's the, my dilemma as a preacher, you see, um, I want to share with you something that you already know. And now, uh, how do we do this? Because, see, you already know it. And I'm going to talk to you about a story in the Bible that you were very familiar with, and you could tell me. So now I've got a preacher's dilemma, because I, well, you're going to say I already know this before I even get started. See, so... But the preacher always has this problem. He has to actually not tell you what you already know. That's not a preacher's job. I'm not here to tell you what you don't know. Um, I'm here to tell you what you do know. And the preacher tells you what you do know. And then asks you, well, do you know this? And you say yes. And so the preacher's only question is that, well, if you know it, why don't you do it? Why aren't you doing it? And so that's the preacher's question, basically. We preach the same things, and we tell the same stories. Now, I can hear you say, oh, here we go. Well, we already know it. Yeah, you do. But I want to look at it differently with you today. What? Well, we'll get there in a minute. Firstly, let me say this to you, that I believe that you and I, whether you're online or you're here today, you and I, uh, have this moment appointed to us by God. You, you are here, online or here, and I am here, according to his divine plan and purpose for your life and mine. This is not an accident. You are not here by chance. I know you may have thought, well, I wasn't going and then I did come, or uh, I didn't want to come, but I'm here. doesn't matter how you got here. This is God that brought you here for now, for this moment. I believe that. You don't have to believe that. That's okay. I believe that. I know that to be true, even if you don't know it to be true. Do you see what I'm saying? That's the preacher's foundation, really. He has to have that confidence and know it with certainty. So I know, because I've prayed for a, quite a while about this meeting, that you are here by divine appointment. And that gives me a responsibility to make sure that I do what is necessary and needed, what is God wants in this divine appointment. And that's a big burden for a preacher to carry, isn't it? It'd be nice and easy to say, just get up and have a bit of a talk and then go home. But that's really not what preachers do if they're going to do it properly. We have a divine obligation. So would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that this is a moment that is ordained by you. We thank you, Father, that this is a, a moment that you have created, a moment, Lord, where we meet together, you, me, and all these people, and we come around your word, and we open our hearts, we open our minds, and Lord, we just ask you to speak into our spirit today, speak your word of life, speak change, speak challenge. Speak transformation, I pray, and may new fresh life come to all of us, I ask. And deeper love for you, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Okay, let me tell you a story, a story that you're quite familiar with. There was a time early in the Gospel of John where Jesus relates a story to us. It's a story of a wedding. Now, the strange thing about this wedding, well, not strange, I suppose, but if you think about it a little bit, it becomes, uh, um, well, enigmatic. Jesus turns up to an ordinary wedding. So the Son of God turns up to an ordinary wedding. Now, because it's family weddings, and, and, and you know what family weddings are like, you, whether you like them or not, you've got to go, right? So I'm not saying he didn't like them, but he had an obligation, and he goes to this wedding with obligation. But he has 12 disciples, and he takes them with him to this wedding in a very small village for a family wedding. And when you see God turning up at a wedding like this, you've got to think that how important the small things in life are to God, how your small things, how your ordinary things are important to God and that he wants to be in the middle of all of that, that he doesn't want to be separated from your ordinary points of life. We tend to bring to God the big things, the important things, the crises, the needs, the difficulties, and we bring them all to him, and we say to him, look, you know, I'm in trouble, or I need a new job, or I've got this problem at work, or I, I need this being done, and we bring the big stuff to God, and then we don't worry about the little stuff, we sort of get on with it ourselves. But God actually has an interest in all the things that happen to us, in our life, even the things that we would consider to be normal, ordinary, seemingly insignificant things. Now, Jesus turns up to this wedding with his disciples. Now, you know the story, so we don't need to read the whole passage of Scripture to you, but the strange thing that happens at this this, uh, wedding is that they, as you know, run out of wine. Now, when you and I say they run out of wine, we're used to it. So it's a story we used to tell them. Oh, yeah, they run out of wine. But wait a minute. Hang on. Hang on. Whoa. Whoa. They ran out of wine? What if it was your wedding? This wedding's not a single day. It's not a few hours like our wedding. So it goes for days. So they would have spent a lot of time preparing for this wedding, preparing a large amount of wine. But for some reason, whether it was the extra 12 guests that turned up with Jesus, or whether it was the people who were particularly thirsty, it was a warm day, or whether they had miscalculated, we don't know. But what we do know is that as time passed, it was becoming pretty obvious to everybody that the wine was running down quicker than was necessary or that they anticipated. So can you put yourself in their position now, please? The wine is running out for your guests. What would you do? Well, you know, you've got to try and find some more wine, right? You just can't say, oh, bad luck, we've run out of wine. Well, maybe you could in Canberra, but in that day, they couldn't do it. They couldn't just say, well, you drunk it all, you're being greedy, you know, bad luck. They had to provide more wine. I'm sure then that if you were in their situation, and certainly if I was, I know what I would be doing. I'd be going to my family and my friends and saying, have you got any wine at home? Can I borrow some wine? I'll give it to you back later on when the wedding's over, but right now I need to borrow wine. So Uh, maybe they went around and borrowed all the wine they could. But still, the wine was running out. It it is an inevitable train wreck that's about to happen here, right? It is a chain of events, and the consequence and the outcome is, is absolutely clear. There's no way out of this. Now think, Jesus is there. He's the Son of God, yeah? No, he is entirely God. 
He's not just a man who has the gifts of the Holy Spirit operating in his life. That's a heresy. Forget about that. He is entirely God. All God and all man. Entire God, entire man. All the attributes of God, all the attributes of humanity. Do you understand that? No, we don't. It's a mystery. He is a unique person, but he is God, right? And all of the aspects of God he knows. So he's all-knowing, yes? So does he know the wine is running out? The answer to that is yes, he does know the wine is running out, yeah? Of course he does. Yet, he's watching it run out and he knows it's going. He knows it's running out, running out, running out, running out. Now, what could he do? He could walk up to those pots and he could just say... And they'd never run out of water again, would they? He could do it, couldn't he? It was within his power, wasn't it? He's watching them running around. What's the, what the wine's got? Can, can you get some? Have you got some more wine? Where can we get some more wine? He's watching all the panic. He's watching them. He's watching them sweat. He's watching the wine go down. He's watching the servants talk to each other. We're going to have a problem here soon. And he's watching all of this going on. It's all happening. And he knows absolutely everything and has the power to fix it with just a single word but he does nothing there's the enigma why because you see we have this strange idea about God it's a very strange idea about God and we accuse him of this all the time you knew why didn't you do something when Lazarus died, on three occasions, both the sisters of Lazarus and the crowd who were there all said the same thing. If you were here, he would not have died. That's not true. That's not true. It's the way we would like it to be. It's the way we want it to be. But God does not prevent problems, difficulties, coming to your life does he come on now you want him to and you get annoyed when he doesn't but the fact is that he doesn't and God knew what was going to happen to you he knew you're going to lose your job he knew you're going to have the car accident he knew that you were going to get sick he knew that you were going to have those relationship problems he knows that you got financial difficulties or wherever it is you're facing God knows yet he did not prevent it because that's not the way he works. Now, why wouldn't God prevent these things happening to us? I mean, if he's a loving God, because that's what you said, if you really love me, why did you let this happen to me? If you really cared, you wouldn't let these things happen to me in my life. What do you do? You don't really love me. We've tried all those childish things, like little children whining about it and blaming God because of all these things that happened to us. We've all tried it, right? It's a human condition. We do that sort of thing. But the point is, why does it happen? Well, let me ask you this question. If God kept you from ever having a problem, a difficulty, any pain, any suffering, any anxiety, any anything at all in life, if you just went through life never facing a crisis, never having a challenge, never having any trouble whatsoever, what sort of person would you turn out to be? You'd turn out to be a really spoiled brat, wouldn't you? 
You would. You'd have no compassion for others because you've never felt anything that others have felt like that. You'd have no understanding of other people's circumstances. You, you'd be without empathy, really, if you think about it. You, you know, when you see people who are privileged and never have to experience what other people are experiencing, they can be very self-centered individuals, can't they? Obnoxious sometimes, yeah, because they don't know. They've never experienced See, these things we are experiencing, the things that God is allowing and permitting to happen in our, in, in our life is what life is all about. It's a necessary process for us to become really, truly mature people. It's important. Without all your problems, without all your difficulties, without every trial and everything you've experienced, you wouldn't be a nice person. But because of all these things that God has permitted to happen to you, you have been on a path of growth and personal development and maturity. And that's why Peter tells you that the trial of your faith is much more precious than gold that perishes. Because what you have through the trials and difficulties of life is something that money can't buy. Something more precious and important and more valuable than all the money in the world. You become a better person. You can't buy yourself a better personality, but you can grow into it through the experiences of life. It's called life. Yeah? It's not called God let me down. He didn't do what I wanted him to do. It's not called God doesn't love me, so I've got this problem. It's called life. And he made you a sincere promise. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of a good courage. I have overcome the world. We will experience trouble as they were running out of wine. So we will experience problems in life. But there is a divine process. And if we engage in the divine process, then the issues of life that we face actually become things that make us better people. But if we don't engage in the divine process, if all we're going to do is blame God and, and rage at God and turn our back on God and get angry with God and anybody who represents him, then, then I'm afraid that nothing good is going to come out of this. Yet all things will work together for good if we participate in the process that God has for us. That's the difference between being a Christian and being an unbeliever. Because we believe everything is part of the plan and process of God. That God intends for our good. And so he is working in us in everything that happens. And when we believe this, we don't see the things that happen to us as nasty punishment or the work of the devil. We see it as the experiences of life through which God wants us to grow into something greater than we are today. Something better than we are today. And we see this in the wedding, condensed all the way down to a little moment, a domestic family crisis with a silent Jesus while things are suddenly starting to go very wrong indeed. And then what happens? What changes this trajectory towards disaster was the mother of Jesus. Yeah, you remember? She goes to Jesus and she basically says, son, they are uh, running out of wine and 
fix it. This is mum, right? Mummy. And he says, well, uh, I can see a smile on his face. It's, uh, nah, it's not the time. Not the time. She says, fix it. It's not the time. She just said to the servants, do whatever he says and walks away. Now, you can't refuse your mother, right? Who would dare? Now, some people get confused over this because it says later on in this chapter when this miracle is complete, that this was the first sign that Jesus committed. It's the first of seven signs of his divinity that we see in the Gospel of John. So it was always planned by God. He knew. Even though he's talking to Mary and saying, well, you know, it's not my time yet. Uh, he already knew, right? He's the son of God. He knew they were running out of wine and he knew what he was going to do before he got there. This wasn't a surprise. He didn't say, oh, what can I do? Oh, hang on. Um, oh, I know. Uh, well, well, I'll, I'll do the wine. No, he already knew. He knew this from eternity. He knew it. It was a moment when he was going to reveal himself as the son of God, but he was going to do it in a family wedding in the confines of that small group of people. And it shows you that God actually wants to reveal himself as the son of God to you in your family, in your personal crisis, in your individual places of need. He doesn't want to just manifest himself on the stage of the world by turning, you know, wine into water into wine or multiplying bread and fish he wants to actually manifest himself in our personal life in our domestic life in our normal crises and difficulties of life so she says to him come on do it now point is i think that she understood something that we sometimes fail to understand that he was present and he is the son of god Something nobody else understood at that wedding. That the Son of God was present in the midst of the problem. That he wasn't absent, but he was there. And she took the problem to the one who is present. To the one who was always present. I think that's what we forget. We forget that he never leaves us or forsakes us. We forget that he's there always with us. Even to the end of the earth. That he's always going to be there with us. And that he is the son of God. And that he is your Jehovah Jireh. And that he is your exceeding great reward. But we forget. We forget that he's there. And sometimes we can't. Where are you God? Why didn't you? Where would have been? But he is there. He is there. He never left you. Your problem is not because God disappeared, not because he turned his back on you, and not because he stopped caring for you. Your problem is because that's life. Now deal with it. God is there to help you. Yes? That's what it's about. And she knew this. So she didn't ask for the problem to be taken away. She didn't ask, why have you done this to me? Or does God love me? She just took it to him and says, I cast my care upon you. Here, you, God, son of God, you are here. I believe you can fix this. Is that what you will do? Will you stop your raging? Will you stop being angry? Will you stop your sulking? And blaming, will you just simply go to him? Stop asking why. Just say, here it is. I believe you're here. You are my Jehovah Jireh. You will be my supply. Yeah? He 
he's there. When you go to work, behold, he is there. When you come home, behold, he is there. When you get in your car, behold, he is there. When you face your problem, behold, he is there. When you sit for your exam, behold, he is there. When you go for your interview, behold, he is there. He is there. That's what the scripture says. He is, behold, he is there. And he's there with the intention of revealing himself to you as the son of God who can do mighty things. Will you bring your problem to him? Because notice now, nothing happens unless it's brought to him. Nothing happens unless it's brought to him. Why didn't it happen? Perhaps you didn't bring it to him. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Ask and keep on asking and keep on seeking. Because he's there with the intention to bless you. And so they bring this problem to him. And now Jesus does something which is, I suppose, always puzzling to everybody. It is part of the, the, the story. But he says to the servants now, I want you to go down to the well. I want you to draw from the well water. And I want you to pour it into these pots, right? You know the story. I don't have to read it to you. You can tell me. Pour the water in the big pot. These are big pots, right? Very big pots. They're not the normal small pots, the amphorae, which they use to carry the wine. These are really big pots for carrying water, not wine. So instead of going to the well continuously, they get the servants to fill up many big pots so that when they needed a cup of tea, or I didn't have tea, they could just go in, pull out the water, wash their face, cook their meal. They didn't have to go running back and forth, right? So it was a, so sort of a sort of a water reservoir at home, a lot of it, right? And they said, go and fill them up. Now, put yourselves again in the position of a servant because if I was a servant, I would say, well, excuse me, sir, um, I'm employed to look after this wedding. It's part of my job. And uh, they're running out of wine. And your mother said, I know she said to do whatever you, you say, but look, I've got a little problem with you, sir, because uh, we're running out of wine, not water. This isn't going to solve the problem. Yeah? It's not going to solve the problem. But they remember, do what he said. Do you remember that? Do what he said. Or are you going to have an argument with God that his solution is not adequate for your problem? His supply is not sufficient for you. Will you argue with him or will you do what he said? Will you listen to his word and obey his word? Or will you engage in an exercise with God that says, I'm much smarter than you and I know this won't fix the problem. So they had to lean not on their own understanding and in all their ways acknowledge him and they put it on the side and they went and got water water and poured it into the pots now we go to the next phase in which Jesus says to these servants who know what's inside those pots they put it in there themselves go and take the water and serve it to the people now, that's phase two, see. If I'm a servant, I say, okay, it's on you that we fill this up with water, but buddy, it's my job on the line if I pour this stuff out at that feast. I'm telling you, I'm going to lose my job. Now, we're going too far now because now he has to take the wine and go down and pour it into the cups of these people who are expecting wine. Not the best wine, perhaps, but they're expecting wine. But they, their servants know it's water, Yeah? 
They know it's water and it is water. Let's not argue about it. It is definitely water. And now we come to the next step. If you listen to him, will you do what he says in faith? You see, the believing the word is one thing. The doing of the word is another step forward. You can believe it, but will you do it? Because what Jesus asks of us sometimes is something that is deliberately, it's deliberately against your normal way of thinking because he seeks to confound the wisdom of the wise. You can imagine that man standing there who was blind as he came to Jesus and uh, he's obviously blind and he's come for healing and he hears this sound. Uh, yeah? And then he hears... What's that? And then, oh, you're you're joking. Did he really just do that? That's disgusting. The spit is running with the mud down his face. And then Jesus says to him, go and wash in the pool Siloam. My answer would have been, I would not need to wash in the pool of Siloam if you haven't put your spitty mud all over my face. Why is this happening? To confound the wisdom of the wise. See, we want God to do as he's told. We've got to control him. We see this in our prayer when we come to God and we say, God, I need you to help me. I need you to give me this money. I need you to help me with that interview. I need you to do this. I need you to change their mind. I need you to do this. See, we've already got the plan. It's your plan. It's a wonderful, perfect, wonderful, beautiful plan. It's the best plan you've ever had. And all you need, you can do 99% of it, but you just need God to do his bit. And you know what? He won't even do his bit when you know what to do and you've got it all ready and he won't even do his little I'm only asking you to do one thing why won't you do it? because he won't do your plan God is not here to help you fulfill your plan he is here to fulfill his will in your life and nothing else you cannot ask God Lord our Father which art in heaven Hallowed be thy name. Let my will be done and you do what I tell you. It doesn't work like that. It works like this. Let your will be done and I am prepared to abandon mine in order for the most perfect will of God to be done in my life. Because the outcome of the will of God is the best thing that can ever happen to you. And the outcome of your will can be a disaster. Um, I've said so often to people, if God wanted to curse you, he would answer all your prayers. <laughs> Think about it. Think about the many times you say, oh, thank God. Oh, oh, thank God he didn't answer that. Thank God I never married that person. Thank God I never got that job. Thank God that loan fell through. I would have been, a, thank God I didn't buy that business. Thank God. Yeah. Because he didn't answer your prayers. You will never know what unanswered prayers saved you from. Trust him. Trust him. His plans are not your plans and his ways are not your ways. They are though the best way. 
And so they pour the water onto the guests' cups. And away they go, pouring water, thinking, I lost my job. I'll never get another job again. I'm done. As soon as they start drinking, they're pouring out, pouring out. And as they're pouring out, they hear behind them, wow, <gasps> whoa, amazing. They're thinking, well, what are they drinking? Because this is water. <laughs> now, I do not know when the miracle occurred. There are many times in the Bible when this happens. We don't know at what point the water changed into wine, but it did. It doesn't matter when, and it doesn't matter how. We know who did it and what happened. Stop asking for the how. He won't explain it to you. And if he did, you wouldn't understand. Yeah? Come on. Come on. So what we need to do is accept that he's done it. And that he will do it. And he doesn't have to explain it to you. Because often we come to God and say, what? No, no, okay, all right. So what are you going to do? When are you going to do it? No, just leave it with him, like Mary said. And let him do his stuff. Now the wine, according to the man that was the MC of the wedding, he said, this is the best. Other people, other people leave the poor wine till last when everybody's drunk. But you have kept the best till last. The best is at the end when God does it. it. At the end, see? Because when you do it, you start good and things run downhill from there, right? Yeah, come on, that's life, right? You buy a house and oh, you do it up and then uh, the garden's ruining me up the wall, all right? And you see it, things run down from there. You buy a new car, you wash it every week and then things run down every week. It's whatever you get, and it runs down every week. It just, it's human nature, right? There are some of you who have a personality that will keep it up as pristine as the day you bought it, whatever it was, but the rest of us, we sort of slacken off a little bit. But with God, things don't run down. Things run up. Things run up because the best is always yet to come. No matter what you've experienced, God has got something even better for you. Even better for you. There are better blessings. There are, there's more understanding of God. There's more growth in your faith to come for you. There's more positive change for you as a person. There are great things to come. That's why Christians look forward to things and have a hope in the future because with God, things get better. But on your plans, things get worse. Remember, God has kept the best till last for you and you haven't got there yet. And when these people are drinking this wine and, and they hear this man say that, they don't understand what's just happened. But God has done th something amazingly supernatural. It is as something that's never, ever been done before in the history of the world and has never been done since. The Son of God entered that small domestic situation and showed himself to be the creator of the universe and turned the most common substance in all of the universe, into delicious wine. Boom. Easy peasy. Hmm? Easy. No sweat. No puffing. Oh, geez, that was hard. No, just, just like, easy. Your problem is not a difficulty for God. No matter how big it is to you, 
no matter how serious you think it is, and I'm not saying it's not serious, and I'm not saying it's not big to you, but you must try and turn it around the other way and see that what you are asking is simple for God, easy. You don't have to stress that he can't do it. And you don't have to offer him advice as to how it should be done. He created the universe without consulting you. Yeah? And there's a very good reason why God doesn't come and sit down and talk to you about a solution. It's because fundamentally, when you look at the intelligence of God, we don't have the intelligence of an ant. I know you think you're smart, but in compared to God, you don't, you know, as thick as a brick, they say, but honestly, we, we don't. And God doesn't consult us because he knows this is our trust in God. Why we put things in his hands. We trust in him, in his goodwill, in his grace, in his love, in his mercy. We trust in him. That he knows best, that he knows all things. Can you trust him? If you can, if you will give it to him, he will give you the best. No matter what it looks like, it's the best. No matter what happens, it's the best. It was the best. It's always the best. Always will be the best. He doesn't do second best, third best. He doesn't do half a job. It's the best. Behold, he says, at the end of the first day, God looked and it was good. And on the second day, he looked and it was good. And on the third day, he looked and it was good. And on the fourth day, he looked and it was good. And it never got anything less than good. And it never will be anything less than good. For he doeth all things well. And he will do good for you. Amen. He will. That's his intention, his plan. His unwavering, unchangeable will is to do good. And he is doing good. And he that has begun a good work in you will finish it. Amen. Embrace it. Come on. Take your problem right now and say, God, forget my solutions. Forget my suggestions. Forget my demands. I give you my problem. I give you my difficulty. I give you my hurt. I give it all to you right now. And all I ask is that you do your will here in this problem. Will you do it? Will you submit to him? Will you submit it to him and do what he says? Or if you will, if you will do what he says, he will do good for you. Amen. Can we pray? Father, thank you. We believe, Lord, with all of our heart that your intention, because of your love for us, is to do good for us. Love is doing good. It's intending to do good. Love is goodwill. And we thank you for the love of God, which is goodwill towards us. You said it with the angels, goodwill on earth. That's your plan. Goodwill for us. You want to turn our problems into something good. You want to turn our ashes into beauty. You want to turn our mourning into joy. Our lack into your supply. Our hurt into wholeness. And I thank you that you're a God that transforms and you're with us now in our circumstances and situations of life. We thank you for being with us. We thank you for doing your will. And we yield ourselves to you right now. 
Will you, in the quietness of your own heart, offer your problem, your challenge, your trouble to God right now? Will you do that? Here it is, Lord. We bring it to you. We bring it to you. We're looking for you to do what you do, which will be the best for us. We yield to you, to your word, right now, in Jesus' name. Amen.